Hey, I'm Alex Starr, and this is the podcast that connects you with people from around the world that have fresh ideas, concepts, or inspiring stories. We are in a unique place in time that has never been seen before, with billions of people now able to communicate and share information across the globe. Be a part of the movement in rising together to create the world we want. I'm glad you're listening. Pull up a seat, and let's get started. one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. Women are still the majority of the world's poor, the uneducated, the unhealthy, the unfed. We've seen rape used as a tactic of war before in Bosnia, Burma, Sri Lanka and elsewhere. Why extremists always focus on women remains a mystery to me. But they all seem to. It doesn't matter what country they're in or what religion they claim. They all want to control women. They want to control how we dress. They want to control how we act. They even want to control the decisions we make about our own health and our own bodies. How do I, as an average person, begin? Well, first of all, never think of yourself as average. You started off with the wrong question because you're not average. You've got a lot going. I see you're smart. I see you're very beautiful. You just have to get that word average out of your vocabulary and you have to tell yourself that you're great and you have to believe it. If you can say it and don't believe it, it doesn't matter. So just go out there and work hard. You need the leadership to come from the very pinnacle, from the very top. And if it doesn't, it's not going to happen. And that's not happening now. It's not happening now. People aren't getting together. I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. I don't frankly have time for total political correctness. We have to stop illegal immigration. We have to. They love me, I love them. And I'll tell you something, if I get the nomination, I'll win the Latino vote. I will win it. by gender, by not allowing them to divide us up by whether or not we were born in America or whether we're immigrants. When we stand together, as white, black, and Hispanic, gay, and straight, and woman, and man, when we stand together and demand that this country works for all of us rather than the few, we will transform America, and that is what this campaign is about. It's bringing people together. Hey, guys, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pull Up a Seat. I'm Alex Starr. You just heard some inspirational videos from Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and Bernie Sanders. And yes, if you put in those three names, followed by inspirational video, something will pop up on YouTube. So I thought I'd give a little broad range there before we jump in to this week's episode, which is with an associate professor at USC in international relations and public diplomacy. She also specializes specializes <laughs> hard time with that one specializes in Mexico US relations and she's also my aunt Pamela Starr 
So we sat down in Mexico City and talked about the current climate. What does it mean for the different types of voters? Um, what can be done? What is some of the facts in relation to what the different candidates are saying? I know that it's complicated and I feel like my vote doesn't matter. And that's actually what we talk about. Does it matter? Are we making a difference with our vote? And how do we move past this as a society and as a culture? And how do we use the unique situation that we have with social media and with the age of information? How do we utilize that going forth? So super interesting episode. Glad you guys are tuning in. Please leave me a comment on my site, alexstar.com. You can find me on Facebook, pull up a seat with Alex Star. got the Insta, got the Snapchat, got the Twitter, which I have no idea what to do on that thing. I'm still figuring it out. If anyone has any tips, I would love to hear them because I don't know what I'm doing. So thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you guys on the next one and enjoy. Welcome to Pull Up a Seat with your host, Alex Starr. Okay, I am here with Pamela Starr, who also happens to be my wonderful aunt, an associate professor at USC in international, internal relations. No, international. International relations and public diplomacy. And you specialize in U.S.-Mexico relations. And we are here to talk about politics, which is something that my generation usually doesn't want to talk about unless we're posting funny memes about it on Instagram like I've been showing you lately. Yeah. Um, because the general sentiment, like we talked about last night, we'll kind of reiterate on some of those points, is that, number one, half of it is it's important to vote. Everyone should vote. It's our, you know, it's like our right to vote. You need to exercise that right. You can affect the way the world works by voting. And then the other half of it is, it doesn't even matter. What does it matter if I vote? Right? If I vote, it's going to be some, you know, run-of-the-mill politician that's in there making the same decisions based in the same system. Those are kind of the two sides that I feel about the government in general. This election, which is very contentious compared to other ones, um, like we talked about last night, is bringing out something different in people, number one, because of Bernie Sanders, like we talked about, Mm -hmm. and then Donald Trump, which both of them, I think, are beneficial for different reasons. Trump is so terrible that I think it's beneficial because it's making a lot of people my age going, this is uh, an atrocity, this is something that needs to be stopped, it's an atrocity, look at how far it could go unless we go do something and I don't know the recent stats on how many people actually voted or not, but probably not that good. And then Bernie Sanders is kind of the other camp where it's this is kind of an idealism side of it, but it's something that could be attained. So what I w- what I loved hearing from you last night, which I think a lot of listeners would enjoy hearing as well, is the the Trump voter. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a typical Trump voter? Sure, to the listeners. Um, well, I, this comes from, just so you know, it's not off the top of my head, but it's um, the New York Times and others have done a lot of polling to get a sense of who are the Trump voters. And um, we do know that the Trump voters tend to be people who are whiter. They tend to be less educated. 
Um, but they also tend to be very frustrated. In general, these are people who are the used to be their families were the core of the working class in the United States. They had good middle class, often unionized jobs that didn't require more than a high school education. And those jobs have disappeared in the 21st century economy, a lot of them, um, because of changes in manufacturing technology. You need to be knowledgeable about computers. You have to work with robots to have a job in the auto industry, which you didn't used to have before. Um, some jobs have also gone overseas because it's less expensive to produce there. But for whatever reasons that these people have lost their jobs and seemingly lost their place in society, they're feeling lost and that nobody's done anything to help them. And they look around and realize, well, wait a minute. Um, these immigrants are coming in um, illegally. They've broken the law, and yet the government wants to do something to help them, to allow them to stay in the United States legally, allow them to work and raise their families. And then I look over here, and I see African Americans and other minorities who are getting affirmative action. And... What about me? I'm the true blue American, and I've lost my place in society, and nobody's lifting a finger to help me. So there's this really profound resentment um, against the government that's done nothing to help them, but also against these other sectors in society who seem to be benefiting at their expense. Right, and that's what you were talking about earlier, about how the areas in which it's actually more of a mixed-race neighborhoods those are more predominantly Trump because they can visually see, you know, these people took those jobs that maybe I used to have or these people took the jobs that I think I should have gotten or my kids should have gotten or getting the affirmative action treatment. Right. In relating to the, the Mexicans, and we talked about last night as well, um, the job-taking thing is always a huge argument on immigrants as to that's really the, the main reason that I think of when people make the argument against allowing immigrants in or allowing them to stay illegally is they're taking our jobs. Right? I mean, that's the main reason why I would want anybody else gone is are they affecting my livelihood? And last night you said that it is mainly in construction that they're actually taking the jobs and in the rest of um, agriculture or in – um, you know, housekeeping or, you know, in the, like the restaurant jobs, the more typically Latino jobs. What's the, do you know the percentages on that or what are the main? I don't know the percentages on that. What I do know is that um, for people who, economists who have done the research to try to figure out, has there been an impact on wages? Have wages been brought down as a result of immigrant labor in the United States? And the only sector that I've seen in the economy where they can see that impact is in construction. In construction. Um, and there, ha there were a lot of, um, particularly at the height of the immigration um, in the first decade of this century, um, there were a lot of immigrants who were in the construction sector. Um, and there was some impact on wages. But in terms of taking away jobs, most of the jobs that they have, other than that sector in constructions, are jobs that most Americans don't want to do. Or if they might want to do them, they don't live where they could do those kinds of jobs. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's a red herring in the sense that if you say the immigrants are taking our jobs, the majority of the undocumented immigrants, their jobs, aren't jobs that Americans would otherwise want to do. But there are cases where that is happening. And when you're somebody who feels like your entire lifestyle has imploded in the last 
10 to 15 years and you see any example of an undocumented immigrant getting ahead when you're not, right. then that demonstrates what you know must be true, that it's their fault because you haven't done anything wrong. Right. It's confirmation bias. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So then if what would be going forth the solution to these people who are disenfranchised, who have lost their classic manufacturing jobs, I'm imagining the Midwest, the Bible Belt, I'm imagining a lot of those places, or in the East Coast too, more kind of the um, coal and stuff like that. Uh, these people that have lost these kind of more stereotypical jobs, these blue-collar jobs, what solutions going forth? Because that problem's not going to go away, whether it's Hillary, Bernie, Trump, they put someone else in. What's going to solve that resentment? And the Mexicans aren't yeah. going to go away either. It's not, yeah. We can't deport 30 million of them. That's not you know, rational or, yeah. or ethical. It's only 11, but 11 million. I'm sorry. I, keep, I don't know why I keep having that, that, that number 30 stuck in my head. I don't know why. Sorry, 11 that million. It, and that's, it, it's equally impossible to deport all of sure, them. That's sure, absolutely sure. true. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, a good, it's a good campaign line to say we're going to deport them all because it right. makes people who feel like they've suffered at the hands of these immigrants, it makes them feel good. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's deport them all. Let's build a wall so more of them don't come in. Um, but it, dealing with the problem is very hard. Um, what I can tell you, let me start with what I know won't work. What won't work is saying, let's stop trading with Mexico. <laughs> let's, let's tell Mexico that, you know, you've got to, you know, stop, we're going to stop exporting jobs to Mexico and we're going to put taxes on anything that Mexico brings into the United States. And the reason that's not going to work is what people forget about Mexico or often don't even realize is that what Mexico produces, it also produces, often produces with American companies working in America. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a General Motors automobile, on average, to make that automobile, pieces, parts of it cross the U.S.-Mexico border six times because parts of it are produced in the United States, then some get sent to Mexico, it get, they get refined there, they get sent back to the United States, and it goes back and forth. So this whole production platform is actually trinational, including Canada. Oh, wow. So if you, and we think about it, the number that people talk about, but it's true, is everything the United States imports from Mexico, on average, 40% of it is produced in the United States. Because stuff goes back and across the border right. as it gets produced. The same right. number for China, for example, I think is about 4%. Okay. So we don't export parts, inputs to the production process to China. We just do it with Mexico and Canada. Okay. So you would be taking away U.S. jobs if you try to punish Mexico. Okay. So that so wouldn't work. That's not going to work. Okay. Um, and the other thing that's not going to work is basically saying, let's go back to the way we were producing things before. Technology is not going to go away. Sure. It's there. So... The, the easy solutions aren't there. Um, there are the, never e- simple solutions to complicated problems, right? Exactly. And particularly when <clears throat> the reason people have been losing their livelihoods is changes in technology. As we were talking about last night, this isn't the first time in history that we've seen this happen, where you've got big changes in technology that a result of that is we as consumers get better stuff and cheaper stuff and cooler stuff, and some people get new jobs because of the new technologies, but other people lose their jobs. And when you lose a technology, especially when it's a good union-paying job, it's really hard to get a job that pays as well. Right. And so there have been ideas about how you can help these workers. 
Um, there are ideas that are things like um, their job insurance, which is different than unemployment insurance. The idea of job insurance is that if you lose your job, you get unemployment insurance. But then if you get a new job that pays you significantly less, the job insurance would pay you a part of the difference in the salary. So for a couple of years to help you adjust, something like right. that. Um, do you think that would be, I mean, be sustainable um, as technology is going to continually evolve? I'm not sure. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure how sustainable that is. That is an idea that I know that both liberal and conservative economists agree on, the idea of some sort of a job insurance. It's not something that is um, partisan in that sense. Um, a lot of Republicans won't like it because it implies the government has to get involved and do something. And there really is a bias that the government will always make things worse as opposed to making things better. But what I do know is what we can't keep doing is what we've been doing for the last 20 years is ignoring these people. Right. It's a big chunk of our population. Um, and you know, the, they, they lost their jobs. They got disillusioned. They've, they've, many have gone from the Democratic to the Republican Party. And the Republicans have turned around and taken their votes and given them nothing back. Um, and so that's why they're voting for somebody like a Donald Trump. Donald Trump comes out and says government's the problem. Donald Trump says the political elite is the problem. They're the reason that you've, that you've suffered all this. I'm not the political elite. I'm not part of the problem. I can be part of the solution. And I think that's what he's hitting, this very mm -hmm. visceral nerve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, the nerve is there because we as a society, not just as a government, we as a society have abandoned these people. And we say that, you know, we talked about this again last night about your, your Facebook group and how a lot of the Facebook group, they, you know, Trump, nobody likes Trump, right? Yeah. In my and, social circle on Facebook, I would tell you that 0.5% of the country is voting for Trump based right. on what I see and talking to people I know. And it's the same true of my circle of friends. Yeah. But we live in California and we live on, you know, in that, those parts of California that are doing really well. Um, and, you know, we fly back and forth across the country. We fly to other countries. And we just fly over these people who are hurting. And we just don't really think where, about them. Where I, well, where I work is always a really good That's reminder. That's true. Where I That's, work yeah. is, is very... Um, fits the mold exactly. Rural, and that's where I spend six months of the year, and I right. work, a lot of the people that I work with, rural, lost a lot of their jobs. Um, so they're always a good reminder of, you know, that there's this whole other part of America that, um, yeah, if you, you, can, you can completely live in a bubble, whether you're in a city or whether you're in a suburb, you know, and yet you drive through these parts, yeah. and you might stop at a diner on the way, you forget that there's all these people there that are... Trying to make a living. Yeah. Know? Oh, we also forget it's not just happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's happening everywhere. Right. We were talking last night. I mentioned one of my favorite facts was in the 1990s, right at the very beginning of the North American Free Trade Agreement, when you did have some manufacturing jobs go to Mexico. In those first 10 years of the North American Free Trade Agreement, Mexico lost manufacturing jobs just like the United States did. And it's all due to technology. It's mostly due to technology. Some of it was due to China. Mexico's entire toy industry went to China, so they lost a lot of jobs in the toy industry. But a lot of it is manufacturing. But so if Mexico lost jobs and the United States lost jobs, obviously Mexico is not the core of the problem. There's something else right, going right, on. Right, right, And the problem is, is that these – the core of the problem is the technology, and then Trump starts involving race into this, and then, then it just becomes this very complicated, very charged issue mm -hmm. that incorporates multiple facets of – 
the nation in, in a very bad way. Is there anything that you've heard him say that would be beneficial? Any policy that he has come out recommending or that he wants to implement when he becomes president that you thought, you know what, that actually might be beneficial in some way? Is there one thing that you've heard him... No. No, okay. I haven't. And there, there are two reasons, well, there's one main reason. And I don't say there's nothing beneficial that's come out of his campaign. I think the, the really beneficial thing that's come out of his campaign is it gave this piece of our society the opportunity to scream at the rest of us, mm-hmm. we're here, and we're right. part of this society, and we're sick of being ignored. Right. And yeah. I think that is super important. Yeah, I do too. To yeah, and that's kind of what I was mind. touching on earlier. Yeah. I think he almost put a spotlight on problems, like you're saying, that have been underground, mm-hmm. or that they could turn much worse unless we do something about it. Because, yeah, I don't think, and you said the numbers aren't there either, he's not going to actually become president. But I think it's almost done enough that it could shock people in a good direction. Yeah. If it's used that way. That's a big if, you know? Right. But just let me correct one little thing. Sure. Go ahead. I would never say... That's what he, you're here for. Yeah. No. I would never <laughs> say he's not going to become president. Oh, okay. Because I, it's... I, I think it's very likely. And we yeah. talked about it last night. Yeah, I don't okay. think it's, it's, it's that likely. But I could imagine a scenario, not likely, but a scenario in which he could be elected president. Hmm. So if if um, he becomes the Republican nominee, um, if for re- uh, key Republicans decide that it's not worth trying to run a candidate against him, um, if Hillary Clinton becomes a Democratic nominee, which seems increasingly likely, and if she is then indicted... Over this, the um, email scandal that apparently there were some secret, top secret sure, information yeah. that was in her email, yeah. and if the FBI decides that's worthy of actually indicting her over it, that could be a perfect storm that could create a Trump presidency. Yeah, I don't think that's a very likely outcome, but it's not something we should just dismiss right. out of hand because it it could happen, right? right? Um, but in terms of his policies. I've not heard him say anything that I like, but even more than that, or that I think will help, but even more than that, he regularly contradicts himself. Yeah. He regularly demonstrates that he doesn't understand the issues very well. Um, and so all that leads me to believe that if he were to be elected president, other than one thing he's been consistent on, which is he hates free trade. <laughs> that free trade is not a good thing for the United States. Other than that, I don't know what his presidency would bring, yeah. because he really he says it's, he he would get a better deal, um, which whether he'll get a better deal or not, that tells you a lot about who he is. He's all about getting a deal. He will negotiate, right. and so I'm not sure we know what we're going to get from him. <laughs> right. So there may be some good stuff that could come out of it. I don't know. Yeah, I, it doesn't seem like the most likely outcome. Yeah. But the other thing, a lot of the stuff he says he's going to do or can do, he can't do. Sure. The right. president can't do it by it's himself. It's all lip service. Yeah, right. Yeah, and the most interesting thing that, you know, last night we encountered this from the taxi driver here in Mexico mm-hmm. City. And multiple people when I was in Guatemala and in Panama before this are extremely, extremely interested in the election. They want to know everything they can, particularly about Trump. Like I mentioned Earlier, my Spanish teacher in Guatemala 
legitimately thought that he was going to buy Guatemala. She saw some fake news you know, article online or something. And she was very worried that he was going to buy Guatemala and then kick people out. And So, I mean, he, he's definitely spreading this message of, 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 of hate, you know, to put it simply. That seems to be catching on. Yeah. And people, uh, they seem worried. They seem very worried. And that's that's very disheartening to yeah and, to see that I, I, yeah, and, it's, I agree. and it's being associated with Americans yeah you know that that Trump is being associated with yeah I'm from America and people ask me oh do you support Trump you know like they almost expect me to say yes mm-hmm. and it's uh, I I don't think that that's going to bode well for our global and political stability especially people that are just traveling and it's okay now America. It's just we didn't have enough problems associated with us before. Now we have Trump associated with us. Anyway, that's just like a, that's just a little anecdote I had. Um, so another thing, like like I mentioned at the beginning, the, the major issue with voting, and, and I've been seeing it a lot on social media. How you'll see this meme of you know about you know a million people gathered, and it'll say. Bernie Sanders supporters on Instagram. And then right next to it, it'll show a little group of 20 people, and it'll say Bernie Sanders supporters at the polls. Yeah. Right? And so, and it does seem I didn't vote because I would have had to get an absentee ballot. We talked about this. Right. And my generation is so much more nomadic and fluid and putting things off, putting off marriage. The age for marriage for male, I think, is 29. Uh, for ladies, it's 26 now putting off having children and fewer children, moving around, jobs are online. It's getting harder kind of to vote, I guess, as you move around. And like I said, it feels like it's not making a difference. So please tell us, is it making a difference? Would my vote in California make a difference in the general election? And if the president is decided by that, would the, does the presidency really impact the rest of the way the system is? Because the way I see it, I see it, it's like if you get a top airline pilot and you give him a Honda Civic and you say, okay, <laughs> all right, let's, uh, we're going to take off now to Tokyo. And he can be the best pilot in the world, but you can't make a Honda Civic fly is the way I see it. Mm-hmm. And unless you change that Honda Civic into a plane, then nothing different is going to happen. That's my metaphor in my head I use for the government as a whole. And it, it and that's, I think, what kind of makes a lot of people feel like it's just not worth the vote. What, what difference is it going to make? Especially if you're in an all-blue or an all-red state. What difference is it really going to make? Mm-hmm. So is it? would it make a difference? And, and do you have some inspirational <laughs> words to make me feel like... Like I'm significant, <laughs> and that the people listening are significant. <laughs> okay, let what's me, the truth? What, what's your what's honest the, opinion? Honest, my honest yeah. opinion, based on what you've seen, and you 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 deal with a lot of politicians. You're somewhat in the system. You're in yeah. the circle. Yeah, I mean, honest opinion. If you live in a deeply blue or red state because of the electoral college, your vote for the presidency doesn't make that much difference, and that's why a lot of people don't vote. But that said, that's not the only thing you vote for. You also vote for state-level offices. You also vote for local governmental offices. And the local governmental offices are often the most competitive, and those are the ones that often have the most impact on your daily life. And those tend to be the ones we pay the least attention to. 
So one shouldn't be discouraged from voting um, because you're from California or Texas or New York or whatever it is, a state that always votes in one way as a state um, because you think your vote's not worth anything because it's not worth anything at the presidential level. Um, the other votes matter a lot. And so I, I, I can't say, I can't, I can't overemphasize how important it is to vote and actually to get into the habit of voting. Because you get in the habit of voting, you become more interested in the politics and you might get invo more involved in your, in your neighborhood, in your society, and doing things one-on-one -on -one with the people in your neighborhood so you're actually helping them too. Right. Um, the other thing I would say is that in a democratic context, um, your government is only as good as the people who go out and vote for it. Um, and if you're not voting, your voice is not being heard, period. And your government will never reflect what you think and what you want. It's just not going to happen that way. Um, and, and coming back to your um, this discussion of the airline pilot <laughs> and the Honda Civic, I would argue that the U.S. government is more like a 747 with engine trouble. Okay. <laughs> because it's fixable. How so? Well, part of the problem the United States is having now um, is the fact that we've got so many states and so many districts that are either you know, heavily Democratic or heavily Republican. With the gerrymandering and such? With some, <clears throat> some of it's gerrymandering. Some of it's just the nature of increasingly we all live with people who are like us. We just live in mixed neighborhoods as much as we used to. Mm -hmm. um, so neighborhoods are more um, alike socioeconomically. They're more alike politically. Mm -hmm. um, and we hang out more with people that you know, think like us. Um, so part of it's gerrymandering, but part of it is just the way the structure of society has changed. And you have to get a sociologist to explain to you why right. that's happened. Right. Um, but the consequence of that is that people more and more think my vote's not worth anything because it's just going to be just going to be, if I'm a Democrat, the Republican who always wins, they're always going to win. And if I'm a Republican, it doesn't matter if I vote because the Republicans always win whether I vote or not. And in California, we changed that, right? We changed it by politicians don't determine districts anymore. We hired an independent commission to do it. And as a result, our districts now are more competitive than ever before. And so you have an incentive to go out and vote for state legislatures, legislators or local um, people, right? local politicians or local offices. Um, but at the national level in most states, because of that gerrymandering social change um, impact, um, yeah, you, you don't have an incentive to vote. And those who get elected tend to be the more extreme positions. Because in a Republican primary, the people who are really motivated to go out and vote are those who feel the most strongly, and they tend to be the ones who have the most extreme positions equal in the Democratic primaries, or Democratic, you mm -hmm. go out, and the most extreme are the ones who are most vote motivated. If those who are, of us who are less motivated don't go out and vote, then in the final election you get the extreme right versus the extreme left. And they don't represent the vast majority of the population, right. either one of them. So, And then you start to see it reflected at the top as well. You know, mm -hmm. I, That's why we're starting to see these extreme politicians that I guess are just reflecting the people that are voting then, I presume? Yeah, because so. the, the way democracy is designed, the only reason a politician listens to a voter is because we have, voters can deny them their livelihood. Right. We can vote them out of office. And unless we have that power to vote them out, they won't pay any attention to us. And the only way we can get that power is by either voting 
Or if you live in a state where voting doesn't seem to make a difference, do some protesting, write some letters, something that you are um, trying to make the changes in the country, in your society, whether it's through the vote, through organizing, whatever it is, so that um, the majority, and what I would call is argue is the silent majority, you know, those of us who have opinions and don't like the way we're being governed, but somehow don't always find the time to go out and vote because it just seems too much of a hassle and it really doesn't matter anyway. Um, That's me. We've yeah. got nobody to blame but ourselves. Yeah. It's very true, yeah. Yeah, and there are going to be elections where your vote doesn't matter, but if you're not in the habit of voting, you won't go out and vote for the elections and when it matters. Right. And what, to give some kind of very tangible areas um, to improve, you got me the Economist subscription as a, I think it was a Christmas gift, right? Yeah. Which was great. It still is great. But yeah, I think that also in addition to what you said, starting with educating yourself on the fundamental level of the facts as opposed to these extreme websites and videos you see on Facebook, online, on any, you know, MSNBC on the left and then Fox News on the right. And then you have all these opposing views. The biggest question I always ask is, what the, what the hell is the truth? Where's the truth at? Somebody show it to me. And I think that's the nerve that Bernie Sanders touched on, like we talked about, and that I think Donald Trump is in a, in a totally different spectrum. But in educating ourselves so that when we go and protest or that when we go and write letters, when we go and actually vote at the local level and kind of start from the bottom up like a grassroots kind of movement, which is probably the best way to do it, um, what reading materials or ways would you recommend to educate ourselves in the truth instead of these polarizations, you know, editorials or newspapers or websites or TV shows? Is The Economist a good one for people to check out? Um, what would you recommend to get actual unbiased stories that uh, especially the younger generation would be interested in reading? Okay. Um, there are no unbiased stories. There's no unbiased <laughs> journalism. The, there is a lot of journalism that tries to be as unbiased as possible. Right, but everybody but there, comes at it with but something. But everybody sure. comes at it with mm. a perspective. Um, and so the key is knowing the perspective of what you are reading or listening to. Oh, very interesting. The problem with a lot of stuff on the Internet is we don't know who's putting it up there. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know the bias. And so if we don't know the bias, we don't know what they're bringing to the conversation. I enjoy watching Fox News. I enjoy watching MSNBC because I know exactly what I'm watching. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me to understand how that group of society thinks. Um, I, but I would argue The Economist is amongst the best because it's British. It doesn't have a dog in the game. Um, very often, foreigners have a better understanding of ourselves. And actually, the, the, the 20, 30 years that I've been working in Mexico, I've had dozens of Mexicans say to me when I analyze Mexican politics or something, and they'll say, wow, it takes a foreigner to be able to see that. <laughs> and it really does, because I don't have an emotional tie to what happens in Mexican politics. I can come at it completely dispassionate and say, nope, this is what I see is happening. 
it's kind of like with, with interpersonal relationships as well. You see someone else and you go, oh, God, that person is this, this, and this. And then you can never see it in yourself. yourself. <laughs> That's exactly true. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Yeah, same yeah. thing. Okay. So if you read the New York Times, I love the New York Times. But it's got a real bias. It's really good, high-quality journalism. But it has a bias. Mm-hmm. Equally, the Wall Street Journal. Great, high-quality journalism. They also have a bias. And New York is left, Wall Street is right. Um, no. New York is Yeah, yeah. yeah, New York, yeah. Sorry. sorry. I was, I was, when you said New York, I was hearing the city, not the newspaper. Oh. But yeah, the New York Times tends to be a Democratic newspaper, mm-hmm. and the Wall Street Journal is a Republican newspaper. Mm-hmm. Very clearly, that's what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they both generally try to be very good in the presentation of the facts. Okay. So you'll read the first few paragraphs of the story or a headline on a story, and it's biased. I find it very interesting to look at the head, the front page of the two newspapers on the same day when they're covering the same story. Oh, that's yeah. Because they, the, their headlines are very different, and it comes from their Republican-Democratic biases. But once you get past the first or second paragraph, the quality of the research and the journalism is top-notch in both newspapers. So would you, rec- would you recommend something like that? Would you recommend um, getting you know, both those apps? Um, I would and I do, uh-huh. but it's a lot of reading for most people. So yeah, get both the apps and take a peek from time to time. But think I would rather say something like The Economist because The Economist is a weekly and it is much more um, um, even-minded, much less emotional about the way they analyze your politics. I do, yeah, and I have thoroughly enjoyed that because it also goes over more broad themes in the world as opposed to reporting individual stories that are perhaps more negative. I don't need to hear about every single murder that happens. Right. That does nothing for my understanding of the way the world is working. Right. But The Economist really does a good job of uh, demonstrating themes the Middle East is going like this because of this happened 30 years ago, and this is now projected right. to happen in the future. And that they have an app, right? The yeah. Economist yeah, has yeah. an app. They have and an app. Kindles. It's so very easy to access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. you get the whole magazine. It's easy to read. Okay. It's actually easier to read on the Kindle or on, on an app, I think, than the, the actual physical magazine. Yeah, I find it very easy to read yeah. on that. Okay, good. Because, yeah, I think that's a great way to start is to just being introduced to what's going on in... Yeah, and the Economist is fun because mm-hmm. the, the front page of the Economist is very often a meme. And it sounds, <laughs> yeah, and you know the Economist. It, I swear, people, it, it sounds way more boring than it is. <laughs> the Economist sounds like the worst. I remember when you first got it for me. I was like, oh god, what a damn Pam get me. This, this yeah, thanks. Yeah, here yeah. comes the academic. Yeah, the academic got me the Economist subscription. Can't wait to read it. But it's got science and technology. It's got book reviews. Yeah, it's got very very. Uh, interesting articles that it, it's much much more exciting and it covers the they entire world they should change their name they yeah, should they should. change their name because it yeah. sounds terrible yeah and then cover the entire world yeah so if you're interested and just little snippets of it yeah, kind of exactly. the best parts of yeah. it yeah. yeah so it doesn't it, just, it really doesn't bog you down a little bit of something from every part of the world every week yeah yeah yeah. Okay. Good. Because I think that's that's almost the hardest part in this day and age especially for in my generation is to get good news in bite-sized bits that we will actually pay attention to. Yeah. That's the hardest part, you know? Yeah, and I would also say, I mean, it's always better to be an informed voter than an uninformed voter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But being not 
well-informed is no excuse for not voting. Because the vast majority of people in the world who out and vote are not super well-informed. Right. That's not what democracy is about. Democracy is about you want to get make yourself as informed as you can. But even if you don't have the time to keep yourself really, really well-informed, it's about voting your interests and what you think your needs are. And talking with your friends about, you know, the different positions of the different candidates. And I think this, this, and like we were talking about last night about Bernie Sanders, you really opened my eyes about what it is about Bernie Sanders that appeals to your generation. For me and my generation, I just see, you know, I just see an old leftist. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I don't think I'd vote for him in particular. I don't think he'd do a great job yeah. as a president, but. But he does have this really aspirational. It's very idealistic. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it, I'm just, Old and no longer idealistic. I used to be, <laughs> but you know, sadly, it happens as you get older. Most people tend to get less idealistic, and he's refreshing in the fact that he he's is, remained an idealist. Exactly, he's refreshing in the fact, like I said, that he's saying authentic things that I've never heard a politician say before. Yeah, whether that he could implement them, whether or not he is saying things about the way the system works, about how whether he's voted in or anybody else, the system has to change from the bottom up. Yada yada. That is, it's refreshing to hear. Yeah. 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 You listen to it and go, Mike, I've never heard anybody say that. But let's end it on that because we got to get going. We got to go see the Rolling Stones. Woo, baby. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on. Great information. My pleasure. And um, keep up the good work with the podcast. It's great. Thanks. Yeah. I'm glad it worked out. This was a quick little half hour one, but actually it was 35 minutes. It's a good dose of information. There you go. Thanks. Let's go. All right. Hey, once again, thanks for listening, everybody. I really hope you took some information from that podcast. I hope it was of value to you. And uh, please subscribe to this if you enjoyed it. Leave me a review. And I'm going to take this moment to give a special shout out to my friend Lacey, who always sends me encouraging emails and texts uh, that really gets me excited to keep doing this podcast for all you listeners. And everyone else who has sent me a nice message or an email or a text uh, telling me how much they enjoy these podcasts and are listening. It means the world to me, and I appreciate all of you. So enjoy, and please stay tuned for the next show that will be out in about a week or two. Thanks again. Later.